0: Say I'm say I'm over the top. But there's like no water so the pop is they say amazing grace.
1: So on today's episode I am going to be talking about the book How to Be an Anti-Racist. And before I dig into it, I wanted to talk about why I wanted to do this episode. After that, I am going to share my conversation with Carla Thomas, a woman in my community who is a fellow Anti racist activist. She is an immigrant. She is a black gay woman raising a family in my community. And she's someone I admire and who is so smart. And I've wanted to talk to her for some time now. And this was definitely the right time. And I will get into why it's definitely the right time in a bit. So, the book, How to Be an Anti Racist, as I said, is written by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. And he is in the spotlight right now because of the book. Uh, and it's similar to the way Tanahishi Coates was in the spotlight when his book Between the World and Me came out. So I've been seeing Dr. Uh, Kendi's name a lot. I decided, OK, well, clearly this is something I need to have on my radar. I was going, I needed to give it a read so that I could you know, be current and add to my arsenal in terms of actionable ways to be anti-racist. It's a great title, right? So, I am in this episode going to be talking about the things I agree with in the book and the things that I feel are articulated in a way that are exciting and revelatory and useful. And then I am going to go into uh, some areas of the book that I do not agree with and some I actually think are dangerous. And the reason I feel they are dangerous is because. Our culture tends to cast its light on one anti-racist at a time. So for a few years, it was everything and anything Tanahishi Coates had to say. And anything he had to say was considered law, practically. All conversations were centered around what he had to say about reparations, young black men, etc. Uh, for a while, it was Roxane Gay, the Haitian-American writer who is regularly featured in the New York Times. And, you know, so she had the spotlight on her. The problem I think comes when their voice becomes the representative idea and then to disagree with them not oppose but to disagree with them looks like you are disagreeing with progress. And I want to do this episode because anti-racist thought cannot be a monolith and it's what I see what's happening right now with Ibram X Kendi. Yeah, he is the main voice I am hearing. He is the person I am seeing is he is the person I am seeing Featured as the featured speaker three times in my community, three separate times, right? So his word enters into the cultural consciousness, and other leading anti racist activists don't necessarily get that airtime. And that isn't so much about, well, that's not fair, as much as when that happens, we create sort of like false gods around the topic. I'm going to take some airtime because one thing I realized is. Anti-racist ideas, action plans. The basis for what we are doing isn't science, right? It is ideas, experiences, historical relevance, context. And depending on how any of these things are articulated, we can move forward or step back in our movement. The Dr. Ibrahim X Kendi is a man with ideas. He is not the authority, right? And now it is not my intention to dismiss invalidate or disrespect. My intention is to counter with respect, to challenge with respect, to offer some other perspectives. And with Carla, you're going to get two for the price of one so that we're building a volume of thought, opinions, and ideas as resources. Okay, so I'm going to start with some of the points that resonated the most with me. I love in this book his breadth of historical knowledge. Uh, That is one of the things I admire in a person is to not only have a depth of historical knowledge, but then also have the recall to be able to cite it. Now, of course, he's doing it in a book, so, you know, he's able to... Take his time with it, but it's something that I'm working on as far as like when I have read something, I'm not always able to recall it later in a way that I can present the facts and the figures. Well, it's 99% this and 58%, you know, I'm not as good about that. And it is a useful tool as an anti racist. And so uh, I am working on that. And I really admire his ability to draw examples based in his. historical references that he can expand upon and strengthen his argument. Uh, He has some really transparent uh, moments in the book, one in which he talks about his revelation that as a child he was espousing racist ideas uh, when he was uh, part of a contest uh, repeating a speech actually by Martin Luther King and, and how some of the language in the speech spoke to the old trope that You know, it's black people who are responsible for the issues that have held them back, you know, and not on the individual level, but on the level of, you know, as a as a people who have endured slavery, there's always this sort of school of thought of like, you know, pick yourself up by the bootstraps. Uh, One of my favorite quotes is, you know, in response to. It's, you can't pick yourself up by the bootstraps when you don't have boots, right? So he acknowledges how he was really immersed in whiteness and espousing racist ideas and then applauded for it even by members of the black community. He confronts his internalized racism, admits his own biases that he had to overcome, uh, all really important personal inventory that needs to take place if you are going to approach the work of anti-racism with your full self, purely, uh, and with longevity. So he makes a really interesting point on capitalism. Uh, He basically posits that capitalism is rooted in racism, and he uses anti-capitalist as opposed to socialist He has really impactful things to say about education, segregation versus integration. And then one of the most uh, impactful things that he shares, you know, is um, he draws a parallel between racism and cancer. And he shares that he was diagnosed stage four metastatic colon cancer and then proceeds to say, that our world is suffering from metastatic racism, stage four. And he suggests we treat it the same way that we treat cancer. And that description or prescription is brilliant, right? And he makes the point that racism is not even 600 years old, so it's ostensibly a cancer we have caught early. I love a good metaphor. Uh, I just do. So those are some of the things that I think
0: are exciting, revelatory, Uh, digestible, and uh, the strengths of the book, which is why I would recommend it. And
1: now I'm going to get into some of the areas that I'd like to offer a different perspective and or challenge. And I'm going to be doing that with my guest, Carla Thomas. Rather than a formal introduction, you'll learn more about her in our conversation. And at the end, she'll tell you where you can find her online. Then it'll come back to me with one more pro, one more con, and an announcement. I have to say, you know, I want to put it on record how much I admire the work that you do, the conversations that you lead. I just think you're whip smart, and uh, I learn a lot from you, and I'm really grateful and appreciate you being here.
2: Why, thank you very much, and I'll slip you $100 later Well, thank you
1: very much. (laughs) Uh, So I wanted... to have you come and join me in this conversation. Uh, because uh, we had an opportunity, uh, our town hosted Ibram X Kendi. Uh, there is an organization called FAN, Family Action Network, and they actually bring in a number of, of really provocative, interesting speakers. They've had Kanahishi Coates. They had Ibram X Kendi. Kanahishi um, Coates is back this Friday. He is back this Friday. I think this is the second time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Kendi has been here so um, sold out well not sold out because it's free but um, full house of the high school auditorium on a Friday night coming to hear him talk about his book how to be an anti-racist I was about midway through at that point and I was taking copious notes and really starting to build a perspective and a point of view about the book Um, some things that resonated with me some things that I thought were a little questionable problematic so I'm there that evening, and <clears throat> excuse me. Right as I was about to leave, right towards the end, because I couldn't stay for the Q and A as much, um, I hear your voice and I see that you have stood up and asked a question. And as soon as you asked the question, I was like, "I see you, Carla. I know what's going on here." And so, uh, for our listeners, would you mind sharing
2: what that question was? So one, I appreciate that you saw me because I was going through a period where I kept pointing these things out and nobody was seeing it. So yeah, yeah, um, it was good to be seen. Um, so my question to him was, was he concerned that much of what he put in the book, and not much, I guess much would be overemphasizing, but some of what he put in the book could be weaponized by the other side?
1: Ding, ding, ding. So in
2: the book, uh, he makes
1: this point.
2: He tries to
1: kind of change the paradigm on this View that black people can't be racist. Black people can be prejudiced, but they cannot be racist because historically they are not the people in power. And quite honestly, that has been a necessary argument, I think, in the conversation around anti racism and equity and inclusion, which is look, everybody has bias, everybody has prejudice, but the people in power, uh, bias plus prejudice plus, plus policy is what creates racism and what creates someone who is racist, right? And so, would you agree, yeah?
2: I I fully agree with that.
1: Yeah, so, uh, suddenly, for him to sort of come out there and have this platform where he wants to change that up and say, well, black people can be racist too. When I read that, I was like, this is dangerous for the exact reason that you articulated, the the opportunity to weaponize it. Uh, Would you talk a little bit more, more about
0: how you feel about that?
2: So you know, one of the, I mean, the, one of the key things of somebody who teaches classes on bias and race, anti-racism, is it's it's like the core definition of what we have, and that is a theory, right? That's connected to critical race theory. Um, not everybody buys it. Some people believe that the idea of saying that white people are predominantly the ones who are racist because it's not about white people it's just that in most of the cultures that we're used to white people have the majority of power right. and so um to me this was very confusing especially when i got to the end of the book mm-hmm. where he touted this idea that only policy matters it's all about policy right but the only way to be anti-racist is to change policy so in in that saying that it's saying that these words themselves and many people have said that. It's not just the words. Of course, I don't want anybody calling my kids the N-word or calling them a monkey or anything like that at school. But it's not just about those words that are problematic in America. It's the laws and the policies and the systems. And so if, we, if he touts later on that it's, I mean, he says only, which is very problematic for me as well, um, about changing policy if Black people don't have the, the power collectively. I'm not saying a Black person's never been in any power um to change policy how are we still then calling them racist and so that just does not hold water for me
1: right and and where where it doesn't work for me is this idea that uh you know it's language is important in Mm -hmm. these cases right and i really feel like his point is sound in saying there are black people who hold up supremacy absolutely right like that i will take to the bank this idea that there are black people who are complicit, how we are all in various ways Mm -hmm. complicit because we all in various ways benefit from racism, power structures, institutional racism. We, in order to thrive, even black people, people of color will lean into that and uh, perpetuate it. All of that is true. All of that is a crucial part of the conversation. I have always said, and articulated it by saying black people may not be racist, but they can uphold supremacy. Mm-hmm. And then you can cite left and right some of the very people that
2: Ms. Dr. Kendi cites as examples of black people, people of color, holding up supremacy. Absolutely. Who does not want to hate Dem- uh, Dem- Clarence Thomas? Clarence right? Thomas, I mean, Ben Carson, Omarosa, before she apparently saw the light. Yeah, but, no, she ain't yeah, no not,
1: not so much. Um, <laughs> She saw the door, then she <laughs> pretended to see the light. But the point being, like, that's fine. That's important. That's necessary. To shift it into now saying black people can be racist, right? And when you have something like that that's kind of a headline catcher, that becomes the thing that people remember walking out the door, right? And it was finally picked up by CNN this past week. Yes. Where and they... who's going to pick that up next? Fox News, right. right? And that becomes dangerous. And then it becomes misused in the the broader conversation uh were you sad what was his answer were you satisfied with his answer i i I started to hear it and
2: then i just was like "Uh uh-uh buddy yeah so the answer was that anything could be weaponized which is true but i do believe that if you create something you cannot turn a blind eye to what happens to it afterwards right right you are somehow responsible the impact of that and so um you know, there's a story about the guy who created what was ultimately used as cannon powder and then what was used in, in bullets. He was doing some chemistry experiment. Wow. Was not did not have a military um, use in mind. Yes. But once it was being used, the guilt he felt right. <laughs> that this was now. And there I, is this idea that if you create something, that's your baby. That
1: exact same thing <laughs> came out late recently with the man who um, uh, created the Labradoodle. His regret around that because his initial reason for doing it was because a blind woman who needed a hypoallergenic hypoallergenic dog needed a guide dog, so he breeds crossbreeds. He creates a labradoodle, and now you know it's run amok, Mm -hmm. and um, it's not necessarily healthy for the dogs themselves. And he has now come out saying, "I regret that I did that, and that it's gone in the direction that it did." And and it's it's similar, you know, it's like, and so once that happened. And I, is, if I'm not mistaken, maybe it's not early. It's got to be at least midway through the book because, like I said, I hadn't been all the way through. Mm-hmm. I've completed the book now, but by that time, I remember that being one thing that was sticking in my craw before attending the conversation. And uh, you know, I, I think that he isn't necessarily prepared to consider the impact of what he's saying.
2: Yeah, and his privilege in it, too. Right? Talk to me about that. Um, the folks on the front line who are just trying to get through their day-to-day, who will call things out, and uh, when it's put towards them or they see it happening and they get that thrown back at them, they're the ones who have to sort right. of, they're on the front lines of this. Right. He is on the front lines in a huge, big way, right? He has recognition, he has his policy right. institute, etc. But people are not going to step to him no, <laughs> in the no. same way that the folks in the front line have to deal with it. No. So again, I, you know, like the the privilege in not recognizing, um, not you know, not kind of shrugging off the idea of how it be weaponized and not like providing the people on the front lines with the tools. I mean, you created it. Let's it's, let me hear how quickly you can defend that. That's a, that's a really good point, and
1: and I think that uh, some of that comes from the fact that. It is bold and necessary, I think, to continue to redefine words, mm-hmm. um, and which is what he really, I think, attempts to do in the book. Uh, but this one, I felt, was a little was reckless and um, didn't help. Um, so, what for you in the book resonated? That um, you know, you were mentioning before we got on, Mike, that initially, um, you know, you were vibing, you were you were pretty good first few chapters,
2: and then. Um, so, what were some of those things that resonated? Well, there's no denying that uh, Dr. Kendi is dynamic. <laughs> He's got a way with, and I'll say, a way with words. And doesn't mean like as an extensive writer way with words. Not that I'm critiquing that, but he does have a way of putting a little um, snippet together mm. mm-hmm. <laughs> that's catchy and sure. can become a rallying cry. Yes, right. Um, and so, for instance, this whole idea that it's you know not enough to be. Um, there's no such thing as not racist. You are either anti-racist or racist. Yes, Which, yes. again, he didn't create, but great. I'd love for that to be rallied and put in, again, uh, Angela Davis has been saying that since the 60s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, but, you know, that is an important thing for people who have not been studying these type of orders or this theory mm-hmm. um, to sort of start to think about. And I do believe there's so much power in those snippets, the snippets carry. And right. so that snippet of, you know, it's not, it's not, you can't be not racist. You have to be anti-racist or racist. I think those are powerful. And I'm happy yes. to see, I mean, those will carry. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy to see those carry and people kind of think about that.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I, I would ag- agree with you as well. Um, uh, one of the things I appreciate is the sort of um, clinical clean definitions he has at the beginning of each chapter and they're essentially mirror opposite mirror images of each other it's mm-hmm. like it's this or it's that and there's just a few words that distinguish the differences in the mm-hmm. definition I think that that's a very um, digestible way to have this conversation
2: and um, what were some of the things that started to raise your blood pressure so there's the a continuing mm-hmm. right thread from that which once I saw these issues I started to think about like what did I miss from stamp for the beginning which if anybody hasn't read the Beginning, it's his more historical book. Mm -hmm. It's very dense. It takes you the history of slavery from the uh, 1700s all the way through. Yeah. Um, And he kind of does it in the frame of uh, five black. No, 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 not all of them was black. Kennedy was one of them. But five people he felt that kind of helped propel racism. I'm sorry, anti-racism in their time. Oh, cool. And so um, I started to wonder, what did I miss in this book? And interestingly enough, I I hadn't finished the last four chapters of that book. And so I, it was in my cue, oh, my audio cue. Right. So it came back up right after I had kind of finished, oh, yeah. kind of sent uh, a little after center point or three quarters of his book. And I thought, let me go back and see what I'm hearing.
1: Yeah.
2: And so and I bring that up because this whole idea that black people can be racist, which kind of takes the power out of the equation so it can go both ways, yeah. I found being repeated in stands yeah. stance from the beginning, You know, as I was le- re- le- reading the very end. And so one of the things he does there is that he kind of brings up this idea of Bo Derek back in the '60s, where she had the blonde braids, right, right, and she like all white, well not all white women, but a ton of white women started running out and getting those blonde braids. Right. And uh, he called black people hypocritical for being upset about and calling that appropriation and saying that she was appropriate and white women in general at the time were appropriating black culture because we as black people had been appropriating white culture. For decades, by straightening our hair. Oh lordy! And at that point, like that was a gut punch for me. Yeah. (laughs) Because one, I think that's where his patriarchy comes out. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Let's just admit that the standards of beauty and the pressure around standards are more directed in our culture towards women. And so maybe some overlooking (laughs) Mm -hmm. of the pressure of that. Also, some. I mean, he's a historian for Christ's sakes, but like this idea of our our hair our bodies our skin colors were not seen as beautiful Yeah, it's a brainwashing that had people straightening their hair and bleaching their skin and um, not appreciating the black body as a form. Right, a form of survival. And a form of, to get a job. To get a job. Like, I look job. at pictures of my grandmother and my mother in that time with the whole flip hairdo and whatever. Right, like, right. That's how you got a, a job in an office. Right, and again, the claim that he's
1: making with that example is that that's an example of black people appropriating white people?
2: Yes, oh, that, and he so he, the whole thing against uh, Bo Derek yeah. was hypocritical. Because we had been doing it forever. And again, if you take the power and the context uh, in yes. that situation out, well, then of course it could go both ways, that's right? White can appropriate, black inappropriate. appropriate. Well, and also it just begs the question
1: what's the point? Yeah. What exactly is the point of trying to almost neutralize everything? Yes. Yeah. Who are you doing that for? Who's your audience, right?
2: Who is the book for if you're trying mm-hmm. to neutralize everything? And that's an interesting conversation that I had because I do feel like I am not. As much as I, I bring up the piece of power, and I think that people who are against critical race theory and this idea that um, black people can't be racist because they don't have power, tend to go all the way to the extreme that says, well, if you tell me black people don't have power, that's taking away my power. I'm like, hey, nobody went there. No. Like, I'm not. No. I've never felt powerless no. um, on We're my day-to-day. power structures. Power We're structures. not talking right. about the individual. And so. Um, if you don't go to that extreme and say that, well, when you, when you say that racism equals power plus privilege and black people can't be racist because they don't have power means it takes away all of your power as a person. I, I just, it's, oh, it's so swiping into one direction. But um, I forgot what I was gonna say now.
0: Well, it's okay. And, but I also
1: think that um, it, it gets us going down a rabbit hole that doesn't matter. Yeah. Like I couldn't ima- could imagine, we imagine, in terms of how it can be weaponized, Fox News doing an entire segment about how this leading anti-racist has stated that black people too can be racist. One
2: of their own, two, one of their very own. Right, right,
1: two white people, <laughs> and spend a whole 25 minutes talking about that aspect of the book rather than anything else, right? right. And it's wasted
2: time. Mm-hmm. And as anti-racist- And it's I not efficient. Given not away, efficient. Who, has the, who has the majority of the power, Yeah. and who's doing the most damage, Bang for buck, people. Yeah. <laughs> Let's focus on that.
1: Yeah, and I just think that we need to be so mindful as mm-hmm. anti-racists in terms of whatever we're putting out there that we make sure that um, we are, to some degree, honestly controlling that narrative, mm-hmm. right? And seeing it all the, all the way through the beginning, middle, and end. Um, one area that was challenging for me, and um, I'm wondering what you, and I think you mentioned it before we have Ben Mike, um, is essentially how he says that you have to change policy first, then minds. And his idea is that changing minds is not activism. Um, and uh, that bothers. Me, right? A huge part of what I do as uh, a woman who's, you know doing this podcast, as a woman who uh, does facilitations and DNI workshops and all of those things. A huge piece of what I'm doing is about changing people's point of view, mindset, uh, rearranging the brain, all of that stuff. Building their schemas. Building the schemas. And for this, for him to dismiss all of that and act as if none of it
2: matters, uh, was an issue. So (laughs) big issue for me. It's written as number two (laughs) on my issue note here. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, when I heard that and I read that chapter, I really sat with it for a while. Yeah. Because, you yes. know, if you yes. if something is poked against you in the work mm-hmm. you do, I do similar work to you. Yes. Um, on the education front, on the being just generally visible and, and, and loud. I'm just going to say it, loud about these issues. <laughs> um, I wanted to make sure that my discomfort wasn't coming because he was poking directly at me. You are and literally that I, yeah, speaking that my I, subtext. That yes. I actually saw a, a a bigger problem that was beyond just like oh oops that's what I do and I feel like he's discrediting what I personally totally. do. Totally. But the more I thought about it, I was like, yeah, you know what? Dude's a historian. Yeah, right. If you think about it, the study of history, especially as far back, he's you know goes all the way back. I mean, he goes way back to um, African societies mm-hmm. before, <laughs> way before here, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You get little snippets. You don't always get emotions behind it. Right. Um, You think of all the other people we know and follow, Eve Ewing, um, Mm -hmm. Beverly Tatum Daniels, Robin DiAngelo. He is coming at race from a historian standpoint. He gets facts, he gets dates, he gets, you know, letters written or, you know, scholarly people at the time wrote Mm -hmm. things. But that's not infused with a lot of emotion. Right. Um, then right. you have people who study this from a, psycho- a psychology standpoint yes. and, and yes. study race from the aspects around psychology, and you would never hear that statement from them. Right, that the historian, right? historical aspect doesn't matter. Or, well, or, or, that the, or, the, right. the minds and hearts don't matter. Right. And I think I have a problem with anybody who takes such a literal, not a, like an extreme view on anything, period, exactly. right? You could be fighting for the best of, you know, freedom and take care of healthcare and whatever, but if you start blowing up, you know, <laughs> Government people you don't like, that still is a problem, even though you're fighting for my cause, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I don't like extremes. And so he said it literally doesn't matter. You know, he didn't say nope. we need to focus on both. He didn't say we need to put more energy over here. He said it literally didn't matter. So, yeah. like, from that perspective, you just set yourself up to be questioned. Right. Right. And then the key thing is that as a person who is a lesbian, I have my rights to be married now, I have my rights to um, have like, see my wife in the hospital to, yes. to make medical decisions about her, etc. Does that not mean, as it's happening right now here in Evanston, not a, a lesbian person, but a trans person, that you can't get shit at your job mm-hmm. right. because of this? That your neighbors can't be destructive to you? Right. That LGBT kids at school right. can't right, be right, teased right, right, right. Until, to the point of suicide that just yes. happened? Yes. So I'm so glad that he doesn't care about minds and hearts. Right. But, like... It's a little bit of both. Right. Of course, we need policy done. Yes, but to dis—I dis- mean—to totally discount the minds and hearts piece, I was like, "Dude, I'm done."
1: Right, because <laughs> it's this like—it's the speaking in absolutes. Yes, that does not help the the cause. You know, it's this notion that if you're—you know. And I, and I went through the exact same processes as you I was like, oh shit, well, that's a big old bulk of what I do, right? Mm-hmm. But it's like, I have seen the impact. I have seen when a mind changes. And by when you are changing the thought, the, you're, you're creating the army of folks who are possibly more adjacent to the policy, right? Mm-hmm. So if we're talking about ultimately policy that needs to be changed, we also are creating thought leaders. We are also creating anti-racists and trying to hopefully inspire them to then go into their workplaces and and disrupt the conversations Mm -hmm. and change the status quo. And so the only argument to that is, why can't it
2: be both? Exactly. And everybody has skills in different areas. Yes. And the other thing, too, is that it's just, you know, to your point, it's not practical. We don't live in a dictatorship. No. If our president or our leaders of all, a CEO of a company can just executive order everything, right. we could say, look, just focus on the policies, just yeah. executive order <laughs> everything. But one, every, th- th- those leaders change. So what happens when the other person comes and executive orders it back the other way? Yeah. But two, if the way our, let's just talk about our government yeah. works, is that you have to have enough minds and hearts changed yeah. so they make enough noise. Right. They make enough noise, yes. we can get a bill, written. Right. That bill gets into whether it's a local um, city council, whether it's a state co- um, state congress or it's a federal congress. Right. When that bill comes up, if minds and hearts have not been changed in all those other um, constitu you know, like the constituents of all those others such that their congressperson right. is going to vote in favor of this, yeah. we're screwed. Yeah. So this, it's so impractical anyway right. to be like, just focus on the, you know. Well,
1: and you made a point earlier that I want to emphasize is just this idea of like, well, it's all well and good if you do just do the policy, but the level of resistance, it's just like are we just trying to create a bunch of people who are traumatized? Like in other words, if you change the policy and there's no efforts to change the hearts and minds, then where what are we doing in terms of pe- putting people in the situations where the policy is changed, mm-hmm. but there isn't any, what? you know, guidance in terms of true inclusion, yeah. which means people feel safe. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and people can sh- and be,
0: you know, authentic. Is this a book you recommend? <laughs> I do because I believe in
2: critical thinking. Right. And yeah, I, I don't want anybody to parrot a belief or parrot my opinion. I want people to form their own opinion. Right. And to, 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 to understand, I mean, as I said, this was getting to me because I wanted to understand how one mind could hold these varying thoughts. Um, right. And the piece about him being a historian helps versus like people who. Who, other people who I admire who come at it—not that they're perfect, right—but that I admire that coming from a psycho, psycho psychology perspective, yeah. And the psychology speaks more to me. Maybe right. there's somebody with more of a history background who they're like, yeah, but I lean more in this direction because I'm kind of more factual, whatever. But there's something
1: that you're saying that's interest, of interest to me in terms of like, okay, so you were talking about your experience reading the book, which is like one moment you're like, yes, amen, and the next you were like, sweet lord, um, and that so those those extremes. I'm just as an argument i'm like well okay if if one book can create that sort of uh eruption in a person on either side um
2: can that be a good thing like of, of course that can be a good thing but in this case it doesn't necessarily feel like a good thing so um, what i would caution is that this is not a one-on-one book for anybody if you don't know jack <laughs> About anti-racism. Good point. This ain't the place to start. This ain't the place to start. You are going to be confused as beep oh, <laughs> about you're what's so going on. Right. Now, if you have some foundation where you can then say, "Whoa, this doesn't sound so right. You this can be does in not match," then you could think with a more critical lens. But if you haven't read a whole lot, I don't know that this is the place it to start. It uh, is. Uh, yes,
1: I think that that is really yeah. a, a major takeaway because we can read this book. And, and pick it apart. Said, pick it apart, walk away with what resonates and is useful, but also understand that it's not the law. But um, the, the order of which you may uh, consume this book can be. Put it on your list. Make sure there's some stuff before it. <laughs> That's great. And leading into that, you know, I want to um, pivot a little bit because um, I have some questions for you um, just as the fascinating anti-racist badass that you are um and so what you know one of the things that i I find so um impressive about carla is the breadth of knowledge that you have in this area and um a colleague of ours nina Cavan, who heads dear evanston which is a facebook page and activist page um within our community um did a video of you that I watched, and she asked you some really great questions. and I will share that link after I share this episode. Um, but, but what I learned in that video was holy crap, um, you sort of came to this work as an anti racist
2: um, within, would you say, like the past six years since you moved to Evanston? I would say within the past six years since I moved to Evanston. Well, and it, it coincided with when I moved, back, but it's also becoming apparent. Be- yes. yes. So, so that, that, more, it's more about, less about the move to Evanston, although y'all be tripping a lot. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> but it was, it's more about coinciding with having children and having to raise black children in this country and not having the example of my mother, meaning my mother raised me, yes, but she didn't have these same problems right, or because issues because I grew up in Trinidad and Tobago, um, which is in the Caribbean. But um, so for me, I got to sort of, Come into this as an adult, yes, and take it in with an adult mind. Yes. Whereas as a kid, you kind of build and build it just the way it is when you're here. As Black women anti-racists, that's one of the most
1: important things we can be doing is um, making sure where we can that we are getting on the mic, mm-hmm. you know, and um, adding and challenging and um, contributing to what hopefully will become a paradigm paradigm shift that has multiple perspectives. And um, we got to get loud here because. Wait, you're
2: telling me to get loud? Because
1: <laughs> I could turn it up. Ah, I could turn it no. up. <laughs> um, so first of all, I want to um, thank you again, uh, and hope that you'll come back and we can continue uh, conversations about other things. Um, and but also, you write um, on a Medium. Yes, yes,
2: I do write on Medium. I mean, it was I'm also on. A, I have a Quadrants for Change. The Quadrants quad rants, so yes. quad coming from female, black, gay, and immigrant, yes. um, and so I write on issues of um, inequality. I okay. mean, a lot of race stuff, no, no lie, but there's some gay, um, gay issues as well, trans issues, and um, immigrant issues as well. So that is one piece and one place, but medium is probably the best place um, under oh. quadrants. the number four, change what rants would be awesome you are very very welcome i very much in, in, enjoy this conversation and i look forward to being back
1: me too wasn't that conversation grand isn't carla so smart and brilliant with such a cool interesting perspective i think so uh so as i said i want to close out with two more thoughts another pro of the book is that Dr. Kendi gives an actionable list on how to be an anti-racist, starting with I statements, right? So, and these I statements have to do with a sort of personal inventory that he's asking you to take, which is a crucial component of sort of readying yourself to be an anti-racist. So a couple of examples of that is, one of the I statements is, I confess the racist policies I support and racist ideas I express. Another one is, I think with anti-racist ideas, right? So all of those things that he's asking a person to admit before they really go into this work, good stuff. Now, where there's a gap, I think, is after that. So he doesn't really talk about what you do in your community, how you change policy, as a leader, as somebody who is in an organization where you may not be the leader, but where you are seeing something happening, what do you do? So I'm talking about some of the things that I talked about in a previous episode where I was like, okay, here's how you write an anti-racist email, right, that sort of covers how the recipient of the email might react, things they might say or do, and sort of preempting some of those reactions so that that email can be as effective as possible, right? And get what you want done and get what you want changed, changed. Dr. Kendi doesn't do that as much, right? So I feel as if there's sort of an imbalance between the content of the book and the title of the book, which is How to Be an Antiracist. How the heck do you do that? Because I do want to talk about one more thing in the book that really left me cold, quite honest. So uh, there's a leading anti-racist activist who has been on the scene for a very, very long time. Her name is Dr. Joy Degree. Um, I'm not sure that's how you pronounce her name, but it is. um, How does she spell her name? Capital D-E. Capital G R U Y. And she has done a great deal of work in an area called PTSS, which is post traumatic slave syndrome. And the thesis there, or the point there, is that the history of slavery and then from slavery, mass incarceration, Jim Crow laws, Uh, redlining, all of the traumas since slavery to today that black people have experienced has created something of a post-traumatic stress disorder, right? And she coined the phrase post-traumatic slave syndrome, right? And my understanding of it is that what she is saying is essentially we have to take to heart as a culture the trauma black people throughout generations have endured and what role that plays in how children are raised how people thrive or how people uh, suffer disproportionately however you might want to look at it and i think it's sound and i think that it places that trauma on a pedestal in a way that's important to look at when we have these conversations, right? In the book, Dr. Kendi, I guess you could say he respectfully disagrees, but there was something about it when I read it, actually, that felt somewhat disrespectful, especially being that she is a black woman who has been at the front of this conversation for a long time, and this young, this man comes in and is essentially like, yeah, she's got that wrong. Uh, but essentially what he's saying is he's, he, he's trying to emphasize the, the point that if black people have been traumatized, that does not mean they are traumatized people, right? So semantically, I guess that's a fair argument. Where my concern is, is that he seems to separate trauma from an ability to thrive. In other words, he has to distinguish between the fact that black people have experienced trauma in this country, but are not traumatized because for him, creating that separation is how he then can argue black people are successful and can thrive. My argument is you can suffer trauma and you can still thrive. You can be traumatized and you can still thrive. In fact, black people on a regular basis are experiencing trauma. So the other thing is he's he's putting this trauma in the past, you know? He's sort of strictly rooting it in a way to slavery or Jim Crow laws, uh, so on and so forth, right? Things that happened before the civil rights movement, as opposed to the things that are still happening every single day. For instance, the Botham Jean trial, which in so many ways encapsulates the trauma that it is to be a black American in 2019. We have the off-duty police officer who is a white woman who walks into a black man's apartment, supposedly by mistake, and decides he's the intruder, shoots him dead, doesn't use any of her police training to de-escalate the situation. She gets a trial. There is some hope because the trial is, the jury is seven black people. And so you think at least this isn't going to be uh, completely dictated by some sort of bias by having a predominantly white jury. Yeah, we have a black judge. There feels like there's even hope there while they're supposed to remain neutral. Um, There's still that sense of, like, perhaps this man is going to get a fair trial. Uh, Then we get the hope that and the sort of validation when this woman is found guilty. And before her sentence, there's a sense of, like, oh, my gosh. We got it right this time. This black man and his family, to whatever degree, are going to be vindicated. You also find out within that that this judge is offering up ways in which this black, this white woman, this white off-duty police officer who is the murderer can use arguments that help her get less time. And so you see in that moment how a black person can be complicit, how they can hold up supremacy. Yeah. Some of what Carla and I were talking about in our conversation. Then we get the sentence, and it's 10 years, and many people don't feel as if that is enough. Then we have the young man who is Botham Jean's brother,
0: who makes the individual decision to say he forgives the murderer and
1: then re- asks that he can hug the murderer, and that image of the Young man hugging his brother's murderer goes viral, and people start to weaponize it as a way to say that black people need to forgive, regardless of the injury, the repeated injury on our spirit and our lives. Right? Then we see images of the goddamn judge, the black woman judge, offering the murderer a Bible. And hugging her. We see a bailiff fixing the murderer's hair. And we start to realize that within this system, even when it works in our favor as far as a guilty
0: verdict, somehow the murderer is treated as the victim. And then finally, the horror we endured over the weekend.
1: When we hear that the young man who was a key witness
0: in the trial, who was able to provide an alternate alternate narrative which
1: disproved what the murderer said happened, we find out this young man is gunned outside his apartment, shot in the mouth and chest,
0: dead, for speaking truth. That's trauma. That is trauma that we experience every single day as black people to know we are not safe. That is trauma that I experience on a regular basis.
1: The trauma I feel when a police car drives by and I hope to God I haven't done anything that would cause them to pull me over. So I say to Dr. Kendi, who wants to dismiss this idea that a person who has trauma cannot thrive by separating it out,
0: I don't know his point. And it hurts me as a traumatized person,
1: traumatized for the losses I've experienced in my life, traumatized for the experience of being a black woman in this country who, despite that, thrives every fucking day. And you can be traumatized, and you can thrive, and you can hold both things
0: and be of use. And it hurts me that from what I understand, he doesn't see that. And it's the wrong message. None of this conversation can happen in absolutes. It has to happen in the shadows, in the nuances, in the shadings. I have not been able to speak to the Botham Jean trial. And I am just horrified over the death of Joshua Brown. But it will not stop me. It can't stop any of us. And may they both rest in peace. Grace basically gives you the ability of God to build the kingdom on the earth. Right, We can't build the kingdom of God through personality, intellect, through our own physical strength. Yeah.